So we are going to continue reading from uh, John chapter 6, going to read uh, to the end of the chapter now. So we're going to pick up at verse 45. John 6 is a long chapter. It begins with the feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus walking on water uh, as the disciples leave the place on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee where the feeding took place and they leave by boat and a squall blows up and Jesus walks to them on the water and then they take him into the boat and it reaches the other side. And so then there's from verse 25 to 71, one big chunk of, of uh, the, the, what's called the bread of life discourse, if you want the, the, the kind of theological title for it. Um, but Jesus uh, speaking about the, the, the significance of the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 and the provision of bread. So we read up to uh, verse Uh, 51 last week, and this week we're going to pick that up again at 45, and um, sorry, 35, 35, uh, and read through to 71. So a little bit of overlap, but it sets the context. Um, So the crowd have come looking for Jesus. They find him on the other side, and this is a crowd who, uh, in a culture where there are no benefits and people lived hand to mouth and life was tough, had found somebody who, in whose presence they were fed. Last week, we, uh, I, I asked the question whether or not how many of those 5,000 people actually knew where the food came from. Um, how many of those people understood, since it was the disciples who were uh, involved in distributing it, they didn't see the source. So how many of them actually understood? All they knew was that they'd gone somewhere without food. Jesus had been there, and from somewhere... Uh, an endless supply of food and uh, bread and fish appeared, and they ate and had enough to eat. And so uh, they now come looking for Jesus, thinking he's an easy meal ticket, and that that's, if they've got Jesus around, they're never going to get hungry again. But they haven't seen beyond the significance. It wasn't just that Jesus was concerned to feed them, although he was, but the bread was a sign pointing to something. And so this passage is, is, is about the people wrestling to uh, understand and about Jesus uh, saying to them, look, unless the Father shows you, unless you uh, have a, a revelation of what this is all about, then you're going to struggle to see and understand. And Jesus talks about himself in these enigmatic, peculiar terms as the bread of life. What, what even does that mean? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So that's what we're going to think about and pick it up from verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. 
At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of a Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Amen. May God bless his word to our understanding. This is a tough passage. There are some tough things in it. And as we uh, read and think about what Jesus was saying to his disciples, 
It's not hard to imagine why they took offense at Jesus. It's easier for us to understand what Jesus says here to the people in the context of um, 2,000 years of history, in the context of uh, being able to understand to some extent that Jesus was speaking about uh, that he wasn't just speaking about literal flesh and blood, but it's easy for us to understand, particularly because, well, once a month here, we, we celebrate communion. And so, we can, we can make a, a ready connection between the literal eating and drinking that we do of bread and wine and the literal references Jesus makes to real, uh, his body being real food and his blood being real drink. But this is a tough passage. And these people were hearing it for the first time. And if suddenly this person, this enigmatic figure who had incredible wisdom and incredible power, suddenly turns around one day and says, and by the way, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you too might stop and think, eh. There have been lots of cult leaders, I suppose, or there have been lots of significant leaders who uh, started off drawing the crowds, wowing the people, promising much, appearing to be the Savior and the, the, the solution to the need and the fear of the moment, and we're probably in need of one of those right now. <laughs> Someone who will sweep in and make complicated things easy and straightforward. Someone who will appear to have incredible power. And I suppose if you were in the difficult period of the 1930s in Germany, in the fudge and confusion and the post-war decimation after the First World War, and an Adolf Hitler arose who made everything look nice and neat and uh, orderly, who uh, got the nation back on its feet, gave it a sense of national pride, gave it a sense of focus, got people working, got institutions coming together, and suddenly it looked like everything was going to be back on uh, track again, that Germany finally has a new future after the uh, decimations and losses of the First World War. But at what point, at what point do you stop and go, eh, but not that? There have been many cult leaders who have wooed and wowed people and who have started off promising and appearing to have Messiah-like qualities, and yet it has led to all sorts of excesses sexual excesses, mass uh, suicides, all sorts of bizarre behaviors which have just crossed the line. And so, there's a pattern that we recognize. Was Jesus here at this point following such a pattern in the eyes and the ears of the people? A great heroic leader who now suddenly has crossed over to asking us to do something unacceptable you could understand that interpretation. 
Jesus told a parable. He told a parable about sowing seed. And he told a parable about a farmer who went out to sow, and the seed landed in four different types of soil. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story that some of the seed landed on the path, and the birds of the air came and ate it and took it away, and uh, it bore no fruit. And some of the people that Jesus preached to were like that. Some of the people who ate the bread and the fish were like that. They received the bread and the fish. Thank you very much. I'm off home. I have no interest in knowing where that came from, who he is. That's just one meal I don't have to worry about. And there are people like that. There are people like that in the world today. That the word can be preached or spoken or shared, or some blessing, some gift, some grace be given that comes, that's a kingdom thing. And they'll just say, thank you very much, I'm off. Like seeds sown on the path. Hard heart, dull brain, no perception, no spiritual awareness, move on. And then there are those, Jesus said, who will be like the seed that was sown in shallow soil, who for a season believed and produced a a flush of uh, leaves and early indications. M. Ruth, there's a lady who's stranded because the doors are on a one-way setting. And so the seed that fell in the shallow soil, Jesus said, is people who hear and respond when everything in the garden is rosy, when it looks like everything's going really well. And maybe uh, you recognize that in part of your story, that at the beginning of your Christian journey, at the beginning of your walk, you know, it seemed like, this is great, this is fantastic. And often when someone first becomes a Christian, that's the response. This is great, my problems are solved. Life is finally all coming together, and it's wonderful. And then you hit a tough patch, or a costly patch, Or a patch which is just plain boring, where it seems that nothing spectacular is happening, and there's just a period where you have to keep plodding on. Or there may be that there are particular challenges or demands made of you. And Jesus said that there would be those who, like the seed in shallow soil, in the blaze of the noonday sun, would keel over because they weren't rooted enough. And in this teaching, where Jesus, it seems, is almost being deliberately uh, obscure or opaque, it seems that Jesus is is causing the noonday sun to rise over uh, this field of green disciples who are new and young in their faith, and He's actually turning up the heat and in a sense, he's doing two things at once. He's, he's turning up the heat to present them with something that feels and seems unacceptable, whilst at the same time presenting his teaching in a way to see who there is who gets it. Who there is who gets it. I love that phrase. I don't know what it means, but I do know what it means. You know, there are people who just get it. And and the nature of what Jesus is teaching them about requires a level of of discernment, 
of the ability to see and to believe beyond the literal words that he's speaking and to understand that he's talking about deeper things. And when Jesus talks about deeper things, they're not always very easily understood. Indeed, I wonder if Jesus is being deliberately provocative here, if he's upping the ante to express something in terms that will flush out those who really do believe from those who are just in it for the signs or for what they can get out of it. Who's actually really committed? I used to listen over and over and over again. I've told you this before to a, a, a little cassette tape that someone gave me, which told the story it was of, of the, the, the Lewis revival. In 1949-52, the preacher and missionary Donald Campbell went up to Lewis for a three-week mission and ended up staying three years because revival broke out. It's very well documented. And this little cassette tape that I had, yes, it was a cassette tape. If you don't know what that is, children, I'll tell you afterwards. But I played it over and over and over again, and it told it was a collection of first-hand uh, memories and, and uh, reminiscences of the experience of the Lewis Revival. And one person told a story of how Donald Campbell, in uh, one of the meetings, would preach to people, and, this, and the, the, the sermon was about, about the awfulness of sin and its consequences and the judgment and the coming wrath of God for sin, which sounds terribly fire and brimstone. But you see, in the context of the Spirit breaking out, God wanted to get serious with people and was challenging the people through Donald's preaching about the reality of sin and its terrible consequences, if not dealt with. And so that was the content and the essence of the message. He did not go on to tell them about the cross or salvation. He did not go on to tell them about the way of forgiveness. He just stopped short at the reality of sin and the coming judgment, which may seem to you or to me thoroughly irresponsible. <laughs> but after the sermon was over, there were those who went their way, having heard the sermon. And there was another group of people who remained and who came to see him afterwards because such was their distress and such was their conviction and such was their desperation because they had heard and understood and uh, believed that this was a serious thing. And because of that, they were begging Donald Campbell to tell them effectively, how then can I be saved? And so the ones that had heard and responded and who were clearly convicted by the message, he took them into a back room and he explained the gospel to them. And he explained that Jesus had come and died on the cross, that their sins might be atoned for, forgiven, and removed. And that by uh, believing in Jesus and opening their lives to him and giving uh, themselves up to him, they could know salvation and peace. And so those people who went through to the back room uh, prayed and received Jesus and became believers that night. Now, should Donald Campbell just have told everybody? But this way, it meant that the ones who really got it, 
who got it because the Holy Spirit revealed to them were the ones who were actually so desperately serious to know Jesus. You see, there were lots of people here who just wanted what Jesus might do for them. They might want, they wanted maybe to see the next sign or the next miracle. This is exciting. A day, a life, a week with Jesus. And yet Jesus wanted them to see beyond the signs. And you see, any of us can, can, can have that genie attitude towards Jesus. A Savior who will do something for me who will meet my need, who will be, if you like, at my beck and call. And actually, Jesus calls us to more than that. He calls us not just to believe in Him for what we might get, but He calls us to so believe that He is the way, the truth, and the life, that He is the Word of God made flesh, that He is the Son of God, and without whom we have no hope, no future, no salvation, no forgiveness, no relationship with God. And therefore, it's as we come to the conclusion that the twelve came to. There were lots of disciples. The twelve were the hand-picked inner group. Don't just always imagine when you read the disciples in the Gospels that you're talking about the twelve. You're not. Usually when it's talking about the twelve, it says the twelve. And so there's a bigger group of disciples And Jesus is challenging them with some really hard teaching to see who will stay and who will go. To see who actually is so convinced that there is no hope or way, no life, no future without Jesus, that they will have to stay. I'm always so amazed by this climax to this story. You know, so often in, in, in the church or in ministry, uh, so often in our lives and our relationships with people, the temptation can be if, if somebody's a wee bit offended to say, oh, sorry, <laughs> let, let me put that another way. Come back, come back, come back. I, I didn't mean it quite like that. And I love the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, says, as he watches some disciples turn back and no longer follow, he says to the twelve, you want to go too? Because I only want the ones that are absolutely committed. I only want the ones that really know and believe who I am. I only want the ones who in their heart of hearts will say, Jesus, without you, apart from you, I have nothing and no hope. Because sooner or later, unless you're at that place of saying, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life, sooner or later in your life, the sun will burn so hot that you will say, do you know what? Done with this. And Jesus, and we can never know what's coming in our lives. We can never know what lies ahead. But you know, the goal for God for you is for you to be so absolutely profoundly and utterly convinced that Jesus is the only way and the only hope. 
that any other substitutes are of little consequence. I uh, have a number of hats in ministry, and one of them is that I'm part of Glasgow Presbytery's Strategic Planning Committee. I don't know who I offended. I don't know what I said, but there you go. And part of the Strategic Planning Committee's job is to look around the city and see what's working and what's not, and where's the future, and we've only got so many ministers to go around, and there's too many churches for the number of ministers, and so on. And sometimes that involves making tough and difficult decisions or helping congregations to face tough and difficult decisions, you know. And one of the challenging things for me in that exercise is encountering people, and I mean no no harm, but it's just an observation and a learning point for me, is people who cannot countenance whatsoever the possibility of worshiping in another building who cannot countenance the possibility of no longer being in this church. Now, I get and I understand that for many people, there are deep associations, there's history. Family members were baptized, they got married there, funerals were carried out there. So I'm not being simplistic when I say that there are very real reasons why people get profoundly attached to a place and a congregation and a community. That's their family of God. But to be in the place where I cannot relate to God apart from here is a worrying and dangerous place to be in. Because if you can only relate to God in this building and with these people, then you are not following Jesus. I'm sorry. You are not worshiping God. He is not your first priority. And I say that not out of judgment, but out of compassionate concern and a challenge. I remember a number of years ago, and I don't think it's been on for a while, but uh, do you remember a program called You Are What You Eat? It was Gillian McKeith was the, the host. And basically, it was a program that invited people. And I think that they kind of, what they, there are a couple of things that they did every week. I'm only going to talk about one of them because the other one, we're just not going there. Um, <laughs> But they used to put a massive big table, a banqueting table out, and they used to put on the banqueting table what the person who had come to be slimmed down or to assess their diet choices. That's why we asked the question earlier on, by the way. And what they would do would be to start off with the shocker of putting a week's worth of what you eat on the table. And for some people, uh, when they saw their diet for a week on the table, that was a shocker enough. Because not only sometimes was the table barely big enough to consume the sheer quantity of food, but sometimes it was the nature and type of food. So there'd be gallons of Coca-Cola, or there'd be pies galore, or there would just be all sorts of stuff that was laden with saturated fat. And when you just chip away a pie and a can of Coke and so on, you don't see it all, but put it all out on one big table, and the the the... the The title of the program was, You Are What You Eat. You are what you eat. So just hold that thought. And let's think about what Jesus then was actually saying when he came to them and said, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Yes, he was being provocative. Yes, he was upping the ante. Yes, he was flushing out the true believers 
from the people who had a lesser agenda, perhaps. But Jesus wanted his disciples to hear and understand what it meant to feed on him, not literally. And yes, we do it symbolically at communion. And actually, there's a beautiful connection in this passage between the the bread and the fish, the food, the literal food that Jesus provided, but as a pointer to Jesus who invites you and me to take into ourselves Him. Not just in communion, but you see, you are what you eat. You are what you feed on. And I don't know what you feed on, but you do, and the Holy Spirit does. So let me give you a list and let Him do the business. Because we may find ourselves feeding on gossip. We may find ourselves feeding on money. We may find ourselves feeding on the praise of other people. We may feed on ambition. We may feed on lust. We may feed on a hunger or a quest for power. We may feed on worry about our lives or the state of the nation or the future. We may feed on jealousy. We may feed on resentment. And if it's not in the list, then right now you know what it is you feed on. We feed on things which preoccupy us, consume us, and ultimately, in the words of Gillian McKeith's program, you are what you eat. And so if you feed on jealousy or resentment, you will become a bitter person. If you feed on worry and anxiety, you will become an anxious person who has no peace. If you feed on gossip, then you will become someone who is constantly looking at other people. If you feed on money or praise or ambition, this is how your life will become. And Jesus said, feed on me. And when he said, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink, he was talking about a reality that goes beyond the stuff that you've just eaten just now. (laughs) He's not talking about uh, scones or water or juice. He's not talking about reality at that level. You know, we think this is real. (laughs) This is passing away, my friends. There is a reality which is in Christ that transcends and goes beyond the things of this life which are passing away. Physically, when we ingest food, our bodies break the food down into little tiny molecules, and I'm not a biochemist, and there are people here who know and understand these things far better than I do, but your body basically takes apart the food and finds the molecules of useful stuff and sends it where it can go to build and rebuild, to repair and restore and renew. And so it takes and it redistributes those molecules and it makes you uh, fit, healthy, strong, growing, hopefully. Of course, if you put bad stuff in there, that's who you become. Jesus' invitation is 
Feed on me. Feed on me. Feed on who I am. Feed on my word so that my truth and what I promise will override and null and drown out the voices of the world which will try to fill you with fear or ambition or jealousy or resentment. Feed on me, says Jesus. And there's another sense, a sense in which Jesus was pointing quite clearly and emphatically towards the cross when His flesh would indeed be torn asunder and His blood would indeed be shed. And if we will feed on the death as it were, of Jesus. Take to and into ourselves by faith that shredded flesh and spilt blood, then it will be by eating and drinking of Jesus' sacrifice for us that we will have life. You see, we have life as we take in Jesus' broken body and blood by faith, believing what it means, what it stands for, and what it has done for us feed on me, says Jesus. Feed on who I am. Feed on what I'm doing for you and what I will do for you, because then you will be what you eat. You will become what you eat. By feeding on the sacrifice of Jesus, His death and resurrection, you will know that you are forgiven, that your sins are covered, your past is cleared, your shame atoned for, and taken away. Feed on me, says Jesus, and all the other voices, a diet of gossip or money, ambition or lust, power or resentment, whatever it be, will be displaced by the priorities of the love of God, by the priorities of mercy and justice, compassion and humility, So, what are you eating? What is your diet? And now I'm not talking about the food that you eat. Because Jesus, challenge and invitation, put in hard terms in order that those who got it, who heard it, and who understood it would respond to it, like the twelve, and say, yes, this is hard and demanding. But you know what, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. I've had times, so I'm assuming you've had times, where this Christian walk, this road of discipleship has become just too tough, too demanding, too difficult. It would be much easier just to give it all up, much easier just to walk away and save the hassle and the responsibility and I find myself, so I assume you have too, faced with these words of the twelve. To whom else shall we go? I have yet to find anyone or anything that I believe will promise or deliver. I have not seen in other people. I have not seen in my journey through this world anything that brings such transformation, hope, healing, justice, beauty, love, as I have the message of Jesus Christ and the good news of his gospel. So where else am I going to go? Because the only way apart from Jesus is down.
Let's pray together.